I have just, uh, well, I've got a lots of words of encouragement, hopefully, but I have one specific word of encouragement that I, I just want to give publicly. Um, and I don't mean to embarrass this person at all. I don't actually know him, but it's you with the plaid shirt. Yeah, the one that's looking down at the plaid shirt. Yeah. What is your name? Andrew. Okay. Yay, Andrew. <laughs> um, I'll just tell you the word I think the Lord gave me for you. And um, it's a little bit of a challenge one, but uh, I just wonder if there has been a, a specific season in your life recently where you have been tempted to wonder if God sees you at all. And um, if that's the case, and you can test that, that's what we do with prophetic words, we test. But um, if that's the case, the Lord wants to say to you, you are right in his crosshairs. I mean, literally, I just saw you in the crosshairs. Obviously not a gun to do you violence, but sort of a, um, the, uh, the heart of God moving in love towards you. It, you are so much more a part of his world than you can imagine. Does that make sense to you? Okay, does that encourage you? <laughs> okay, can I? Huh? Don't wear plaid anymore. <laughs> well, Lord, we just ask uh, for your blessing upon Andrew and just pray, God, that he would know your love in the deepest possible way. And anyone here um, who might feel that sense of wondering, where does, does God see me at all? I just ask, Lord, that we could take in the good news that you know us, you see us thoroughly, intentionally, and eternally. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I was wondering if I was wearing plaid this for a second there. <laughs> uh, how many uh, are familiar with, have read the book, or at least heard of the concept of the five love languages? Let's do this. Okay, so quite a few of us. So for those who don't know that, The Five Love Languages, a book written, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago by Gary Chapman about how we give and receive love from one another, specifically in relationships, in marriages or in relationships like parents and children, etc. And so The Five Love Languages, as this psych Christian psychologist kind of put them out, were um, encouraging words. Boy, I hope I get them all. Encouraging words, quality time, acts of service, gifts, and physical touch. Whew. So um, what, what that means is that quite often we as people, we give love in the way that we receive love. So it's natural for me because I'm an acts of service guy to want to show my wife, here's how much I love you. I did the dishes, I cut the grass, I... And if she doesn't feel loved by me, then I say, but I did the dishes and I cut the grass. But Jane's love languages are quality time and encouraging words. So I can work myself servicely all day long and not communicate to her, I love you. Does that make sense? When you grow, when you mature in your relationship with others and your relationship with God, you get to the point where you realize, I actually want to love the other person as they want to be loved. I want to love them so that they can receive love from me. So I have to be more intentional and say, Jane, let's sit down. I'm going to look into your eyes and let's talk, even though I want to get those dishes done so badly. And I think in some ways, um, when we move in maturity in the love languages, we move from not just giving another person what we know and understand, but give them what they truly desire, then that will affect our actions, that will affect our, our attitudes, and that will affect, affect our affections, what and how we actually love. 
And in some ways, this is a big long intro just to say the text that we're looking at, um, Old Testament prophet Micah, Micah chapter 6, 1 to 8, is God expressing to us his love language. And God speaking to his people and saying, I want you to grow in maturity and love me as I want to be loved. To, to, uh, that your actions and your affections and your attitude would be affected by the way I'm asking you to love me and our relationship will grow. So let's pray and then I'll give you a little context. We'll read and we'll see what the love language of God is. Father, we thank you that you have revealed in the scripture precisely the way that you want to interact with us. And I ask this morning for open minds, open hearts, and soft hearts to hear your word and to be formed into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So uh, if you start finding your way to Micah, I'll also have the scriptures up, but let me give you a little bit of context because we're just sort of launching all of a sudden into Micah. What the heck are we doing here? Micah is a prophet from a small sort of farming community southwest of Jerusalem. And Micah's ministry is about the same time as Isaiah. Isaiah gets more press uh, than Micah, but they were uh, speaking about, about the same time. Micah's message over and over and over in the book of Micah, he says, listen, people, listen, leaders. So over and over, the, the, the job of Micah is to tell the people, listen to God. Not so much listen to me, but listen to God. Uh, much of Micah's prophecy is judgment on the capital, capital cities of, of Judea and Samaria at the, uh, at the time, Israel and Judea at the time, because the leaders of these places were tolerating beliefs that allowed people to misunderstand the character of God. So uh, there was injustice in the time, and the result of this kind of lack of understanding of, of the character of God because of what the leaders were doing, the, re the result was injustice towards the lowly, mistreatment of women and children, unjust business practices, exploitation of the poor. It could be describing America <laughs> in this very time. The rich were living in luxury while the marginalized suffered to pay for the extravagance of the rich. But even as Micah pronounces judgment on these bad practices and these leaders, he also offers hope. It's Micah who is the one who says there's a prince of peace coming. And he's, he's going to usher in a new kingdom. That there would be a future kingdom when peace and security would be the gift of God's people. They would live integrated together and also in relationship with God. So through Micah, God is questioning his people and looking for answers to their behavior. Now, the interesting thing is in Micah chapter 6, it's set up like a courtroom. Who would want to be in a courtroom and have God as the accuser? That sounds scary. And yet, it's what's happening here in Micah chapter, chapter 6. So I'm going to read and comment as we read through. This is Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Micah begins, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. 
He's lodging a charge against Israel. So there's Micah speaking, saying, here's what God's in the, uh, doing. Now, God speaks in the courtroom. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. He's just reminding them of his goodness and his redemption. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God brings his accusation. And then, through the voice of Micah, the people answer. It's like Micah perceives what's happening in the people of God, what they might be saying, and here's what the people say. Just hear the tone. (laughs) With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for the transgression, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now just hear that tone for a minute. Have any of you ever been in, in a, uh, what we call in our house intense fellowship with a spouse? And and an accusation is coming, and you feel defensive, and you start getting real extreme. Has anyone ever done that in their entire lives? Or you're talking with a friend, and, you know, you're starting to get hit in the soft spot, and you're like, well, fine. And then whatever you say after fine, you lose. It's what's happening to the people right here. It's like they're getting extreme. I mean, hear how extreme it is. You want offerings? We know you like offerings, God. Is that what you want? was actually a part of their covenant with God. How about a thousand rams? Well, very few people in Israel could afford a thousand rams, so it's starting to feel a little defensive. How about 10,000 rivers of oil, God? Will that do it? I mean, can you, can you hear the contempt in their voice? How about this? I'll just sacrifice my child for you. That's it. In other words, God, you ask too much of us. Nothing we do seems to satisfy you. Again, I'm, I'm moving away from marriage and relationships here, but have you ever felt that <laughs> in a relationship? Nothing I do is enough. And, and what you hear there, I'm just going to be honest because I've said it enough, is the heart of defense. Not the heart of love, but the heart of defense. And then finally, we hear Micah speak. And we don't know the tone of Micah's voice, I wish we had this, you know, we could hear how Micah said it. I imagine there's a little bit more reason so that he can, he can bring forth simplicity and clarity because he's about to say, here's what God is saying to you. And hear God's love language this morning. He has shown you, O oh mortal, O oh man, O oh woman, he has shown you what is good And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's God's love language. Justice, mercy, and humility. 
when, when we interact with God and we think at times I'm going to do all sorts of stuff for him, I'm going to have my devotions, I'm going to pray a thousand hours a day, I'm going to give, you know, all fine stuff. But God's love language is justice, mercy, and humility. Here's what God is looking for, and he's made it clear through the beginning, from the beginning of time. The Lord speaks here through Micah to declare, it's not your stuff I want, it's your heart I want. Don't hear that as accusation or condemnation. Hear that as invitation. God's saying, you want to know how to love me, how to be in right relationship with me? I want your heart. I don't, I don't want 1,000 rams. I don't want 10,000 rivers of oil. I certainly don't want you to sacrifice your child. I want your heart. God reveals to them his love language. The answer to the question, what does the Lord require, is not about achieving salvation. It's about maintaining relationship. Right? These aren't the things that we do so that somehow God will look at us and say, I guess you're good enough, I'll let you in. No, all this comes from the work that Jesus has already done. And we just mirror the life of Jesus by acting justly and by loving mercy and by walking humbly with God the way he did. So um, as you can imagine, I see three things in this passage that all begin with the letter A. Man, do I love when that happens. I see an action uh, acting justly. I see an affection loving mercy and I see an attitude walking humbly with God. I think that that gives us a framework for God's love language. God's love language is justice. There's the action. What does the Lord require of us, his people? That we act justly. And that means that we value God's righteousness. Not just that we declare God is good and everyone should be perfect, but that we value God's righteousness as it is applied to other people and not just ourselves. It means uh, more than just valuing it, that we actually live by God's standards towards other people. In other words, we live with other people the way Jesus lives with us. We act in justice with them. In Micah's time, the, the, um, the courts were meant to bring justice as they are meant to do in our time. And as in our time, the, the courts often failed to care for the poor, to care for the mistreated, the undervalued in society. So this is a call to action. I mean, when I was reading this, to me, it felt like a call to action out of silence when it comes to issues of justice, out of complacency. I mean, we've kind of gone through this... Uh, uh, justice is all of a sudden trendy. And I don't mean that in a good or a bad way. It's just what is. And um, it's easy to affirm justice, but not to do justice. And I think this passage, God's love language, <coughs> is calling us to move past silence and complacency and take action. It begs the question, and here's a hard one for us, many of us, what will I do with my power and my privilege? I think that's the question it begs when it comes to justice. What will I do with my power and my privilege? How will I look at all that I have as I look at the rest of the world, people that are very different than me? And it's so important because if you just a cursory read through the Bible, you'll see that God almost, well, I think I'll say always, sides with the poor. 
it's very f- hard to find a place in the scriptures where God sides with the rich and the, and the self-righteous. God sides, sides with the poor. He's a God of justice who pleads the cause of the poor and requires that we, his people, do the same thing. <coughs> I was reading an article in preparation for this by a guy named John Bloom. John Bloom works with uh, John Piper in Desiring God Ministries. And I was so convicted by this, I just thought, rather than try to summarize it and make it sound like I came up with it, I'm just going to read it. (laughs) So uh, here's how John Bloom speaks of this part of the passage. My flesh would prefer the command to love justice. Phrased that way, justice subtly becomes more abstract. And it's always easier to affirm what's abstract than to perform what's concrete. If asked, virtually all people will say they love justice. But probe into how someone is specifically doing justice and conversations turn awkward quickly. It's much easier to love justice than to act justly. It's much easier to rant against injustice than to take meaningful action to stop it. Ranting costs us little to nothing. Doing justice makes personal, time-consuming, heart-rending demands on us. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm about to die up here. That's why when people asked John the Baptist what repentance looked like, his answers were things like this. Whoever has two tunics, that's a coat. Two tunics to share with him uh, is to share with him who has none. Or collect no more taxes than you're authorized to do. Or do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And to the soldiers, he just said, be content with the money that you earn. Feeling conviction over sin and getting dunked in water, that's what John the Baptist did, was good, but it wasn't enough. The heart is deceitful. Real heart transformation would be revealed in tangible, sacrificial acts of justice. Loving the idea of justice is cheap, but doing justice almost always requires loving a vulnerable or oppressed person in a way that is personally costly to us. True love is not cheap, so God tests our hearts by making justice concrete, something we must do. I'm just going to tell you, that just convicted me. (laughs) i like, oh, that's good, that'll preach and everything, but oh, that actually hurts right here. Because it it means that if I just want to talk about justice or affirm justice, God's moving me to act justly. It changes the way I deal with people that are different than me, different races, different creeds different theologies, different politics, different socioeconomic uh, situations. It changes the way not just I think about them, but I live with them and act out there in the world. How do we look at those that are different than us? Equally important, how do we act towards them? Are there any ways that, I'll just say it this way, that I partner in the world with injustice? Acting justly is harder than affirming justice. Do I act justly or do I simply affirm the idea of justice? And the question from this action is, am I willing 
to love God in his language by acting justly out in the world. God's love language is mercy. There's the affection. The word translated here um, to love mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. If you really want to do it right, you've got to say it with a little phlegm in your throat, which is pretty easy for me right now. Chesed, excuse me, everybody. Chesed. And hesed is a word that's actually hard to translate into English because we don't have a word that takes in these concepts of love and kindness. So hesed, which is all through the Old Testament, describing the way that God loves us and we are to, to love other people. Chesed is loving kindness or covenant faithfulness or unfailing love. So when you hear that, when you see that word mercy or unconditional love, or if you're reading in Hebrew, chesed in the Old Testament, that's what you're thinking of. God's love language is chesed. It's unconditional love. It's never failing covenant kindness. It's loving kindness, if we put our two English words together. And not only is God that way towards us, he loves being that way towards us. You notice Micah doesn't say act kindly. That's implied. What he says is love kindness. Love mercy. Have an affection for acting towards others the way that God acts towards us. To love mercy drives deeper than just occasionally doing nice things. You know how good it feels when you go out and you just sort of randomly do a nice thing and then you have that sort of thought like, gosh, I'm a nice person. What does it mean to love mercy? To move past, hey, it's convenient, and I think I can do it, and I got five bucks in my pocket, and why not? I've got time, etc. To move from that action to, I long to act like God in the world. I want to be the representative of Jesus in the world. I want that person who might even be a little not so comfortable for me to be with to know that the God of heaven loves them through me if that's all they see this day. Loving mercy demands a heart orientation of loving kindness that shapes all our actions. How we act towards others reveals how we feel about mercy, about loving kindness, about unconditional covenant love. I'll just quote the same guy again, John Bloom. You can tell I stole most of this from him, and I'm happy to do it. And like acting justly, Loving mercy is costly. It almost always requires loving people in ways that place their needs and preferences ahead of our own. We can't love mercy and love selfishness at the same time. So God tests our hearts by making kindness not merely things we do, but something that we love. So loving mercy means practically walking with those who suffer, showing faithfulness, generosity, and compassion. And I'm, I'm not trying to point people out, but I'll point people out. Loving mercy is like looking at Sean Israel's face or Sarah, I don't see Sarah here this morning, but Sarah's face or anyone else who volunteers with the Indy Vineyard Missional Food Pantry that you can tell they're not caring for others that are less fortunate just because it looks good on their resume or it feels good to their heart. They do it because they love it. There's something in it 
when, if, you, if you come on a Tuesday night and you watch them minister, you'll see the love of Jesus go through them. Not just because they're acting kindly, but because they're loving mercy. They love to communicate the heart of God towards others. Even when it's uncomfortable or personally costly. Loving mercy is not just loving action, but caring activity. It's loving the opportunity to love others the way God has loved us. So maybe a question, again, not a condemnation. Do I love mercy? Do I love kindness? Or as it kind of hit me, do I just love the idea of mercy? Do I just love being connected to a group of people who love mercy? Or God, do I love mercy? Do you want to love mercy? Do you want to have the heart of God? I think when we say, God, give me a heart of mercy like yours, I think that's a prayer he cannot wait to answer. So are we willing to serve God in his language, loving mercy? And God's love language is humility. That's the attitude. Walk humbly is a description of the heart's attitude towards God. Walking humbly, just so we all remember, is not rehearsing all the horrible things about ourselves. Let him just say that again. Okay, walking humbly is not just rehearsing inwardly or outwardly all the horrible things about ourselves. It's living gloriously free with our limitations because we're loved by a limitless God. I just made that one up. I thought that came from God. I thought it was pretty good. Walking in humility is living gloriously free with our limitations because we're loved by a limitless God. C.S. Lewis said it, and many people have quoted him afterwards, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of you. It's just spending more time thinking about you. Walking humbly with God means I freely and honestly admit that he's the creator and he is the sustainer, and he is the redeemer, and he is the king. And walking humbly means that I realize I am the created, and I am the sustained, and I am the one redeemed by him, and I willingly and lovingly serve him out of that space of grace. Not because I'm so awesome and I finally figured it out and now I'll serve, but because he redeemed me so thoroughly and so lovingly that I want to go give that away to the world. Connected to acting justly and loving mercy, I think walking humbly means taking on what God has given me. So it might be easy to move from a message like this and say, well, that dear old Pastor Randy told me I had to do three more things and I've got to take on the injustice of the world. I don't think that's the point. I think walking in humility says, I will take God what you've given to me to do. I will use the power and the privilege that you've given me and use it for justice. I'll take my worldly goods and my life and time and use it for mercy. I will walk in humility because I've been loved by God. I think it's also sometimes a willingness to give up or give away what God wants from us on behalf of another. The heart to live with others as God lives with me. So are we willing this morning to live in God's love language, walking in joyful humility. So God's love language, at least as I looked at it, is acting justly, 
is loving mercy and is walking humbly with God. That's how we live out our relationship with the one who created us and sustains us and redeemed us and loves us. An attitude of humility before God and others, the affection for mercy, loving to see people valued and forgiven and practically loved and redeemed, and the action of justice in and through our own lives so that we will not just like the idea of, but actually advocate for the mistreated, the poor, the disenfranchised, the weak, the powerless, and using our power and our privilege to bring God's righteousness to every part of society. You know, I was going through this message and I, <laughs> this will sound pretty cocky, I thought about Jesus. <laughs> because the cross of Jesus demonstrates God's love language to us. The humility of Jesus to take on, I mean, Nate, did, Nate, as he was just leading us into communion, the humility of Jesus to say, I am God, but I'm not going to act like that right now. And I'll even take on the form of a man, and then I'll go all the way to the cross, even death on a cross, and take your shame and your guilt. That's the uh, humility of Jesus. The affection of Jesus for us, longing that we would get not what we deserve, that's mercy, get what we don't deserve that's grace that's the that's the added, that's the affection of Jesus for us and finally also that justice could be enacted on our behalf so that the justice of God could be satisfied and that God and man could be together and then you know what we get to do we get to give it all away we get to go out there in the world and give away the good news so let's stand and let's pray the ministry team could come forward that'd be awesome Lord, I uh, just want to ask this morning that you would allow us, enable us, empower us, encourage and exhort us to live in light of the cross this morning. That we would live justified, that we might act justly, that we would live loved, that we might love mercy. And humbled by the way God speaks his love language to us every day of our lives, we would walk in humility in the world so that people don't see us, but they see Jesus in and through us. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Just going to invite you, if you want someone to pray for you this morning for anything, whether it relates to what God spoke to you during worship or what you walked in with that you don't want to walk out with, Maybe it's a physical injury and emotional things, spiritual stuff. Maybe you just long to know this Jesus who did all that for you, but you don't. I'd encourage you, come forward. Ask anyone here on the ministry team to pray for you. And um, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.
Sorry to interrupt. Quick little uh, word. If anybody came in here with elbow pain and wants prayer for healing, uh, yeah, just please come forward and uh, we can pray for your elbow to get healed.